0: What I want to look at in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15, we're going to work our way to verse 22, and the title for the message is, I want you to think about why was Jesus' death necessary? So why was Jesus' death necessary? And this passage from Hebrews 9, chapter 15 here, like I said, it really fits with us doing the Lord's Supper today. We have Easter coming up, but this passage can help us really understand why Jesus had to die at all. And so what I want you to walk away with from this morning, if there's kind of one big theme from this passage that I hope to communicate, I want us to see that Jesus' death, it brings in the new covenant. We'll talk about that briefly. But that new covenant provides promised eternal inheritance if you're one of God's children. So I want you to just think about that as we go through this. I'd ask if you would please join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's word. And I want to start Hebrews nine fifteen through 22 it says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book himself or itself And the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Let me pray. God, thank you that we have heard songs that just focus our hearts and our thoughts on the wonderful sacrifice, the the bloody, gruesome sacrifice, Jesus, that you went through to pay the ransom for our sins, to save us, to redeem us. Thank you for that sacrifice. Now, God, I ask that you help me communicate truth from this passage that also tries to get us to see more truth about the sacrifice you provided for us, Jesus, and as our time of the Lord's Supper that we'll go into, that we would be preparing our hearts and minds now for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I apologize, The I may have uploaded the wrong slideshow, so don't worry about it, guys. That was last week, so that's probably my apologies. This morning, Hebrews 9, 15 through 22, why was Jesus' death necessary? I want to look at some core reasons why, and we're going to, carry that into the Lord's Supper this morning. The first reason why Jesus' death was necessary, he tells us in verse 15, is Jesus' death was necessary to bring in the new covenant. So it's necessary to bring in the new covenant. If you would look at verse 15 with me, he says, Therefore, he, now he is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Let me pause there. I just want to draw your attention to, he begins with, let me tell you about Jesus, here's who he is, and his first descriptor is he's the mediator of a new covenant. So again, he's referring us back to what we kind of talked about the last two weeks, I won't rehash all of that, but it's simply to say this, when Jesus died on that cross, it did a lot of things. Yes, it paid for sins, but it did a lot. There's a lot of behind the scenes that was going on when Jesus was hanging on that cross and dying. And one of the things he was doing was becoming the sacrificial animal, so to speak, the blood sacrifice to inaugurate, to bring in the new covenant that God had promised people. So he's drawing our attention here again to say Jesus is now a mediator. He's a go-between. Between holy God and sinful people, there's a gap. They, sinful people can't just crawl and work and climb their way to God. He's too holy. We're too sinful. There's a chasm. Who can fill it? We need a mediator that sort of pleads our case, pleads our cause to the Lord, that pleads our salvation, that we've been forgiven. And that's what a mediator does, but he mediates a new covenant. You could think of that a new agreement between God and his people. So Jesus presides over a better covenant. Now, real quick, that is found in Jeremiah 31. I'll read it to you. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. God made this prophecy a long time ago. And Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. So here's the part then I want you to see. God said the old covenant, Moses and Aaron and the priests of Levi and all the Old Testament stuff, that is going to be fulfilled and a new thing is coming. And here's what the new thing is. God says, I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So no longer will people say, I must find a scribe or I must find a priest and Hear the law. No, God says, if you're one of my people, it'll be in your heart. You'll know me from the heart. And then he goes further. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, No, the Lord, they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, what that was setting up for is when Jesus comes, he dies how many times? Only once, for all eternity. But these guys in the Old Testament, under the old system, They had to bring animal sacrifices constantly, year after year after year. Why? Because they could never save the soul. They could only do temporary things, and they mostly were for physical things. But God was predicting through Jeremiah here, I'm going to send the Messiah, and what he will do will be good one time for all eternity. I'll cast their sins away because of his sacrifice. Verse 35, he says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars, For light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So that's the prediction or the prophecy of the new covenant. And Hebrews says it's here. Jesus brought it in. We're living in it today. Ever since he died on that cross, his blood shed brought in the new covenant. He mediates it now. So the next reason why Jesus had to die is this. It was necessary that he die to give God's people their inheritance. So the second part of verse 15. So it's necessary that he died for this other reason to give God's people their inheritance. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So there's the the key. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he says here, Okay, who am I talking about? He calls them those who are called. Those who are called, they can get something. What do they get? He says eternal inheritance. God has promised certain people an, an inheritance, an eternal reward. And he says it's those who are called. Now, there's different views on this, to be honest with you, throughout church. Different theologians line up on different sides of this. I'll tell you where mine is, but I simply take when he says those called to mean that God has given out the invitation, He's called people to come to Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, and it is those who have put their faith in that gospel call have become God's people. And those people, He says here, fit this credential, so to speak, that they now stand in line to gain an inheritance. They get something now from God through Christ. But I just want to draw the point for us to see Christ had to die, though, To make this inheritance become a reality for God's people. God has promised an eternal inheritance. What are some of the things he's promised? Well, for starters, heaven. Jesus said in the Gospel of John especially that he was leaving the disciples, but he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and get you. So literally you have a home in heaven. You have a place in eternity that God has promised as an inheritance. But there's other things here. Eternal salvation would be another big one. We've talked about this weeks ago, but if you're saved and you're a child of God and you have salvation, it's secure for all eternity. Jesus also said in places in John that not even Satan himself can take you out of the love of God if you're one of his children. Let me read you a couple. 1 Peter 1, 4 through 4-5 says this. He says, uh, we've been called, and then he picks up in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I love verse 5 because Peter is saying, on the one hand, if you say I'm a child of God, you can say, I'm saved, I'm already saved. Past tense. I've been saved, I've been forgiven. But Peter says, but actually there's a future salvation yet to come for us. And it's when Christ will return and call his people home and we will be who we're really supposed to be. Resurrected bodies and all of that stuff. So Peter says, there is an inheritance waiting for God's children yet to come. And it will never go away. It never fades. It's imperishable. 2 Peter 3.13, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. One of the things we will inherit is eternity, heaven where it's pure righteousness, no more sin, no more death. And Peter says, we're waiting for these things. It's part of our inheritance. God's people of faith are promised this eternal inheritance. But Jesus had to provide it. That's what I want to stress. How so? By his death. His death ensured that we get our eternal inheritance. But without his death, we wouldn't be able to have it. So Jesus' death redeems... I have a typo here if it's on the screen. Jesus' death redeems... It's It says OT and BT. It should say OT and NT. So Jesus' death redeems Old Testament... And New Testament believers from the curse of the law. I really want you to hone in on this. I I, this is a fascinating idea to me that Hebrews talks about. Let me say that again. Jesus, his death, one of the things it did, he brought redemption to two groups of people Old Testament saints, Old Testament people of faith, and New Testament people of faith. And what he really did is he redeemed us, both groups, Old Testament and New, from the curse of the law. Look at verse 15 again, still there. He says this phrase, since a death has occurred that redeems them. So Jesus' death has brought redemption, and he says them. Well, who's he talking about here? Well, he says he redeems them from transgressions or sins committed under the first covenant. I want to draw your attention to that phrase, the first covenant. All he's simply talking about is the Old Testament covenant, the law. So he says, Jesus' death, it did something here. It redeemed people from their sins, but he says, from those who had sinned according to the law of Moses, the first covenant, the Old Testament. Well, who's the them? Again, I'm saying it's both groups. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Old Testament people of faith, New Testament people of faith. What Jesus redeemed people from is the curse of the law. You see, here's the thing why well, I said this is a, a cool point to me that Hebrews makes. I think as New Testament believers today, living in the era that we live, we teach things and believe things, and it's true on the one hand that Jesus fulfilled the law, that we no longer do all that Old Testament stuff because Jesus fulfilled it. And that's true on the one hand. But the thing to remember is this. He fulfilled it because who was supposed to fulfill it? Even today, us. He fulfilled it in our place. That means that if someone doesn't fulfill the law of God, the Bible's wording is they bear a curse from God for not keeping the law. But the irony is no one can keep the law of God. We will sin. And then it goes deeper and says, if you break one of the law, you've broken the whole thing. So we're kind of all doomed. We're all cursed because we all break the law and we can't keep it. But comes Christ on the scene and he fulfills it and keeps it on our behalf. And that's his point here is you have people here, Old Testament and new today, that bear a curse of the law in their natural condition of sin. Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six 26 says this, Moses said, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Jeremiah eleven thirteen says, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. Here means listen and obey. And he's talking about the Old Testament law. Cursed be the person that doesn't follow it. And a final one, Ezekiel eighteen four, He says, behold, all souls are mine. This is God talking. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Like Bruce asked us earlier, who's who's here that has sinned? It starts with me and it flows down. That means then, logically speaking for a moment, we all are under the curse of the law, except for one thing. That's the bad news that no one can faithfully keep the law of God, but are supposed to keep the law of God, but can't keep the law of God. So there's a curse. Well, what happens? Well, Jesus took our curse. He bore it on the cross. So in Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So again, I want to stress this point again. Just because Jesus come on the scene and we have faith in him, that doesn't mean that God gave us a pass for the law of Moses. He didn't. Rather, Jesus carried it, so to speak, on our behalf, fulfilled it on our behalf. And so Paul goes on in Galatians 3.11 and says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can't be saved by keeping the law. You're saved by faith. The righteous live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. by, And notice this, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So verse 14, he says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we live by faith today. That's true, but make no mistake about it. Jesus had to die so that we could be here today and say, I live by faith and not by law. Because Paul says it's only because when he was on that cross, yes, he was dying for sins. But he was carrying the curse of the law because the irony of the Old Testament, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And what did Jesus hang on? A cross made of wood. He fulfilled that. Literally, literally, he hung on a tree, so to speak, and bore the curse of the law. And Paul says he did that for you and I. So if you know Jesus as your savior, then know he bore your curse of the law that you and I were supposed to keep, but could not keep. He did. So Jesus lived and died according to the law's requirements. On the one hand, he lived the perfect life. He never sinned. So he upheld the law that we were supposed to do but couldn't. He never sinned. That's the one hand. So he fulfilled its requirements. But then on the other hand, when he suffered on that cross, he was incurring the curse of the law in our place because we didn't keep it like we should and couldn't. So he kept it in our place, and then he died in our place, bearing its curse for not keeping it. So he fulfilled the law, and he incurred the curse of the law, both in that same act on the cross. So here's what this does next. God's people are beneficiaries of Jesus's will. So the main point again, why did Jesus die? First one was because of the new covenant. He brings that in. The second one that I'm still kind of talking about is it's, it's because Jesus had to do that so he could bear our curse of the law so that he could redeem both New Testament and Old Testament people alike. And what's the point of all that? Because we get an inheritance. So I just want to remind you, it's about this inheritance idea. Well, how do we get this inheritance though? Well, God's people are beneficiaries of Jesus' will. Verses 16 now he picks up and says, for where a will is involved, The death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So two things, he says, okay, when you have a will that's created, drafted, whatever you want to call it, when there's a will, typically, I'm sure there's exceptions, but his point here is there's no exception. When you have a will, that's where you say, when I die, then whoever I've named in my will gets This, that, and the other, and you list the people's names and and what all they get or don't get. But the point is, when you die, your will legally should take over, and there's an executor over that that sees to it it's carried out according to what the will said. But the point he makes here is, when does the will take effect? When the person who made it dies. The will is not in effect while the person is still alive. That's the point of a will I've heard of living wills, bear with me, that doesn't count here. We're talking about normal wills, that when you die, then they kick in. So his point here is to say, look, think about a will. There's a will, the person made it, but they have to die then, and only then, when they die, does the person named as the beneficiary receive the inheritance that the will says that they'll get. So keep that in mind, you have to have the death of the, I think it's called a testator, something like that, the person that signed the will and said, this is my wishes, when that person dies, the beneficiaries kick in and get the inheritance. So with that in mind, he's going to make a point here then and say, okay, well, that's what Jesus did. He brings in this new covenant stuff. Holy Spirit in your heart, eternal salvation, new body, resurrected life, all of those things that we've talked about. But how do I get that? Well, again, he says, you have to inherit it as a child of God. But how do I know I'm going to get that inheritance? Because Jesus died, and by his death, he secured it. How did he secure it? His point here is, pretend that Jesus drafted a will on paper, and he says, when I die, my brothers and sisters of faith get all of these things. And God the Father will be the executor and see to it that it happens. And so here he says, well, guess what? Jesus died. He died on that cross. And what happened, the will kicked in. And if you're the beneficiary listed on the will, meaning you're one of faith in Christ, you get the things listed in the will. You get the inheritance from God the Father. So we inherit the eternal promises of God because Jesus died and the people of faith who are forgiven of their sins, believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we inherit. We're the beneficiaries named in this will from Jesus Christ because he wrote us into it. His will is that we have eternal life that we have new spiritual life, that we enjoy the presence of God forever. He rose again three days later because he conquered death. It was his death that secured all these things. We're kind of focusing on the death. So come back for Easter and we'll talk about the resurrection. But I just want to point out, you know, he rose again to show he could conquer death so that he could say to his people of faith, if you believe in me, not only are you forgiven, not only do you inherit all the promises of God, but you'll live forever because I have the power over death. So his death brought redemption to both, and this is the point I want to stress again, his death brought redemption to both groups, Old Testament and New Testament people of faith. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and suffered the curse of that law on behalf of sinners. That is why his death was required. Now what I find just really awesome here is that he's trying to get us to see is think about Moses and Aaron King David, how are those guys saved? Well, they brought sacrifices, but that's not what saved them. They were saved by faith like we are. But who died for them? Jesus died for them. But how were they saved if they died before Jesus died on the cross? How does that work? What he just said here was, Jesus' death, it goes forward into the future and saves all people who will ever repent in the future until time ends. And guess what? It goes backwards to genesis 1 1 to adam and eve and redeems any person in the old testament who had faith it goes both ways past and future that's the power of jesus's blood to forgive those guys in the old testament and everyone else in the new testament era as well but he had to die to bring the new covenant and to make sure we get that inheritance the third thing to see real quick why else did jesus die It was necessary that he die to forgive sins. That'll be his last part in 18 through 22. The the theme here I want you to see is the blood. He's going to mention the blood of something, either Christ or animals. He's going to talk about blood six times in five verses. So that's his point. You need to pay attention to the blood, he's saying. And he wants us to see Jesus had to die and shed his blood like an animal led to the slaughter for sacrifice because his blood did something. And it secured forgiveness for people's sins. So he says in verses 18 through 20, the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. And here he says, therefore not even the first covenant, so that's the Old Testament stuff, it was inaugurated not without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, so the book of the law and the people. And Moses said to them, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So in Exodus 24, I won't read it, but that's where the story is recorded. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and God tells him a bunch of other laws. That's the book of Leviticus and all those things. Well, then it says, though, when that was all done, Moses took the book of the law, sacrificed animals, took some hyssop branches, sprinkled blood on that, sprinkled blood on the people. And it sounds really gross, but his point is, The reason for that was to show the people it requires blood sacrifice to save you. It doesn't just happen automatically. And Moses was showing Israel back then, God must have a sacrifice to forgive you of your sins and make this covenant work. So the first covenant required blood. Second thing, he says, the law required blood to purify from sin. In verse 21, he says, In the same way, Moses sprinkled with blood both the tent, or that's the tabernacle, and all the furniture, the vessels used in worship. So even Moses went around kind of dashing blood on all the furniture. Why? To show that that furniture made by sinful human hands, before it could be used for worship to holy God, Moses had to purify it, so to speak, with the blood of these animal sacrifices. And in verse 22, he says, Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified by blood. Moses also again sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and the furniture. Why? To show cleansing everything with blood. And now he says in the final point in verse 22, there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. It's not possible. Verse 22, he ends with indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that's why they did all those animal sacrifices. That's why they had to do so many of them. That's why, if you're honest, it sounds odd to us. In our era, it was a bloody mess. Because God was showing them over and over, I'm holy, I love you, I want you to be in fellowship and relationship with me, but holiness cannot come in the presence of sin and not obliterate sin. And God said, but I will make a way for your sins to be covered and come into my presence and be my people. And he showed them through those animals that bloody mess, like look at what it takes. Either you need to die or that animal needs to die in your place. But someone has to pay for sin. Well then, Jesus comes on the scene though. Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus comes and says, I'll be that goat, bull, calf, lamb i'll be that and i'll go to the cross carrying the curse of the law shedding my blood and die and it will fulfill that law save those people from the old testament and save everyone else in the future who will call out in faith and repent of their sins and he only had to do it one time and it was good for all eternity because it was the son of god dying not some animal now some could object to this i've heard this before you can say well, all this stuff about sacrifice and blood i mean God didn't really have to do that. He's kind of mean, isn't he? I mean, he sent his own son to die on a cross. Like, that seems a bit extreme. Whenever I hear that, though, what I want to say is, what you don't realize then, if you're thinking that way, is how sinful we really are and how holy God really is. It's not God being mean and saying, I love to see a bunch of bulls and goats slaughtered. I love to see my son dying on a cross. That's not what it's about. It's rather God saying, our sin is so gross, so wretched in God's sight, He cannot be in His presence. But He made a way. That's the love. To the point He says, I'll send my own son to die. But that's what it took, was that kind of a sacrifice. The fact is, it took the death of the very Son of God to show how awful our sin is in God's sight. Paul says in Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a fancy word for appeasement sacrifice by the blood of Christ to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. All he's saying is in the Old Testament, why didn't God completely wipe them all out? He had patience. Sometimes he let discipline come in, but he had patience. Because he was looking to the future for when he could see in his future mind's eye that he sent the Son to die for their sins too. So he passed over judgment on some of them to let Christ come and die for their sins. Verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the blood of Jesus was, in another sense, an appeasement sacrifice. He appeased the wrath of God against sin for those who have faith in him. God is love. The Bible says that. And society loves to just focus on God's love. And hear me clearly, God is love. 1 John says that. But God is a lot of things at the same time. At the same time God is love, Isaiah says he's holy, holy, holy. and So he's love and holy and holy and love. And then he's righteous. And then he has Justice. And then the Bible says he has wrath and vengeance against sin. He's all of these things in one. So you can't just focus on love and say, well, God will just kind of gloss over all this other stuff because he's love. No, the Bible says, yes, he's love. And it's because he's love he sent Jesus. But also because he sent Jesus is a sign that God will judge sin. And Paul says Jesus' sacrifice was a type of appeasement sacrifice, letting God forgive sins and pass over judgment on us jesus's blood did that so hebrews says jesus had to come he had to die why it was necessary to give god's people their eternal inheritance jesus bore our curse on that cross jesus kept the law on our behalf we can be forgiven and inherit that eternal promise of god his death was necessary to forgive us of our sins only his blood being shed could provide the way is the point Again, my question, I hope you all know Jesus. Do you know Jesus this morning? Paul said in Romans that that salvation, that inheritance, can only be offered to the person of faith. The one who has confessed their sins, put their faith in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, only that one can say, I belong to God and I have this inheritance. Now, we're going to have this coming up Sunday Easter. We'll be celebrating the resurrection. But the re- to be honest, the resurrection doesn't mean anything if a person has never acknowledged their sin in the first place and realized that they deserve, I, we, deserve God's judgment. And if they haven't cried out to God telling him this and confessing of their sins and repenting and putting faith in Jesus, then the resurrection, it it doesn't mean anything right now. But Jesus paid for those sins, and he can offer you forgiveness too if you don't know him today. Paul said it's by faith. It requires faith in the Son of God's sacrifice and resurrection. Now, where we started, I want to end with. I had the three points, so let me hit the second point just to remind us. The first reason I said why Jesus had to go was to bring in the new covenant. Covenants require blood sacrifice to enact them. Well, we're about to take the Lord's Supper now. And this is kind of our tie-in, what I, why I wanted to bring this up. Because when Jesus ate that Passover meal the night before he was crucified, he passed the bread and then he passed the cup and they passed the cup more than once. Well, the last time he passed the cup, Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus says, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you. And I want you to notice this is the new covenant. And then notice in my blood, Jesus was aware of what he had to do. I had to pour my blood out so you guys can have all that promised stuff of the new covenant and be saved for all eternity. That's what the Lord's Supper is here to commemorate this morning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Just Jesus, thank you is all I know to say for your eternal sacrifice offered up. I, I think maybe it's just me. I get caught up in that you, you were God in flesh, but you were a real man as well. And you suffered real pain, real harm, you sweat drops of blood you were under such deep stress so thank you jesus for enduring that cross knowing that if you did you could provide many many sons and daughters an eternal inheritance may you have been honored this morning lord with this commemorative supper in honor of your sacrifice in jesus name